0: and welcome to another episode of Kaki Malarkey. Today, we are talking to the wonderful Fernando Cervantes about his book, Conquistadors.
1: Oh, thank you for joining us. I'm really excited to do this. It's so great to yeah. have like global history and um, look at some different areas that we might not normally touch upon, so thank you. So
0: your book is Conquistadors, isn't it?
2: That's right, yes.
1: I want to double check how we pronounce that because my enunciations <laughs> as a dyslexic are awful.
2: <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I, I, use the, I use the Spanish plural. Because Uh, I I always thought, well, if you if you're gonna use a foreign word, you might as well use the foreign plural. So the correct pronunciation would be conquistadores. Oh, conquistadores!
1: (laughs) Oh, I like that. I'll have to get Zach to (laughs) put that in because i I just can't even attempt. (laughs) (laughs) So we always begin our podcast by asking our guests, "Can you summarize your book in thirty seconds?"
2: Well, I'm not sure I can, but I'll I'll try. (laughs) You Um, should try. uh, It's uh, it's as far as I can. Uh, uh, imagine is the first uh, one volume study that covers all the, the conquests, the Spanish conquests of the new world, uh, trying to keep uh, a narrative thread uh, for the general public, while incorporating quite a lot of the uh, research into social, intellectual and uh, religious history that has been done in the last 40 years in order to give it a bit of context. Wow. I think I might have over overshot the thirty minutes. 30 like
1: ten seconds, what, twenty-seven like, seconds, I think. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, my timing's off. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what, that's incredible? Because there's so much you've kind of yeah. put into a book, and so much you can cover. So, yeah. what was the motivation behind doing this book specifically? And you know, you kind of touched upon some of the general things that you highlight, but is there anything specific within the book that? you felt was really important within this history you wanted to bring out for people to know yes
2: i think i think the most important thing was precisely to try to incorporate all that research that uh, has not really sunk into the into the general consciousness as it were a lot of people are not aware of the kind of research that has gone into social intellectual religious uh, history in not just spain but the whole of the hispanic world the way in which it has turned the tables on on received wisdom especially the idea that Spain is um, somehow backward and obscurantist and, uh, you know, that the role of the Inquisition, for instance, you know, that was there and it was oppressive and that they burnt all sorts of people and whatever. Uh, Because what's happened in the last 30, 40 years of research is that we've been discovering that it's all that's really part of of propaganda that emerged in the 16th and 17th centuries. So to try to put that, um, to make people aware of that, and to try to see inside uh, the minds of these protagonists was was very important to me. It's not a book, as I say in the in the acknowledgments. It's not something that I would have thought about writing, uh, because um, to me it just um, you know it's it's quite well known. The, the stories are quite well known, and um, I. If, if you had asked me i would have said well you know it's been done before and you know what's the point of doing it again uh, but i was approached and encouraged by uh, this very very clever and uh, uh, really good fun agent actually who who just just wouldn't let go she said no no no, i've done my research uh, i've asked all sorts of people and uh, and i'm sure you can do something different and it's only after that that i began to realize that in fact it was It was going to be quite a different thing, you know. That it was—I wasn't just going to be repeating myself, even though I knew the histories. Mm. When you start getting into the uh, primary sources for the, uh, with a fresh eye, after a lot of distance, and with all this um, work that I've been doing in the last—I don't know—forty years or so, uh, suddenly I—I realized that I could tell the story from a very fresh perspective. So that was that was. um, that was quite fun. It wasn't easy, but it was fun.
1: I can imagine, <laughs> at least it was fun. So I feel like, isn't that typical? You, you have on one set of your mind, you're going one way and suddenly the winds change and you're going the completely other course, but what a joyous experience it is.
2: Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: Was there anything that particularly surprised you in the research, like whilst putting together this kind of new, fresh perspective on it? Was there any sources you kind of went back on and thought, oh, we could definitely take that in a different way or place that in a different context?
2: Yes, I think uh, the most surprising uh, bits that I found uh, was we're trying to deal with the involvement of the mendicant orders, the religious orders that uh, the conquist after the conquest. They, you know, from the very beginning, the um, the Spanish monarchs were very keen to justify what they were doing on the basis of the spread of the Christian religion, and uh, Mm -hmm. of course, when we think of that from a modern perspective, and especially in the current debate with with, you know, that empire is all bad. And, you know, the, the spread, what, what right have we got to spread uh, Christianity? And that Christianity has always been allied with Western imperialism and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and that's something that has always been there in the background of the, of the historiography of, of the conquests of the new world. You know, that the, the sword and, and the cross went together and that somehow uh, religion was a, um, an ally in oppression um and what i found really really interesting is the role of these early mendicants you know because they were pre reformation and mm-hmm. the way they were they went about their business was not really uh imperialist in the sense of trying to impose something from above uh, that it was much more of a conversation that there was a lot of adaptation going on and uh, that they really were very the way they write about the indigenous peoples and the way they related to them uh, was very very i found it very attractive so, trying to establish where that mentality came from was fascinating. You know, the, the movements of reform in late medieval Spain, uh, what they were reading, what they were thinking, where it came from—that—that uh, that was um, very, uh, really great fun because I think it was—I uh, was kind of finding something that hadn't been noticed. You know, um, mm. especially the the reform movement uh, in in but that really started back in the 14th century, and. Um, particularly exciting was this um uh, when it comes to the to the dominican order uh, to find the influence that the the, the really big influence was um uh, a single uh young astonishing lay woman you know <laughs> it's not something that you expect to find yeah in the middle ages, wow,
1: definitely.
2: but but she was she, she was just uh, phenomenally influential in in this movement of reform and it gave um these early friars, uh, so a freshness of approach uh, that uh, sowed the seeds of something that you can still see throughout Latin America, you know, the way in which um, the the, uh, the really genuine cultures that we admire nowadays uh, sink their roots in that mm. in that early experience. So that, that, that was very exciting. Yeah.
0: Mm, wow. It's nice to hear. I mean, we've had guests before kind of talking about medieval women and it's and they they say the same they're surprised by how influential these women were and it's something that kind of constantly crops up in history as it gets reassessed the role that women actually did have in history and how they and how they change things so yeah thank you for bringing that up but it, so it sounds like your book deals with a lot of myth busting in a way which is something we do like to talk about on this podcast um, so what what were some of the main perceptions that you were trying to challenge here do you think there's many really ingrained myths about the conquistadors that you think that your book sought to challenge
2: um Yes, I I I think so. I mean, all all you need to do is is ask uh, questions from not just the general public, but uh, you know academics. You say, you know, what's your general impression of the conquistadors, and and they will immediately say, oh yeah, really bad. You know, it's one of it's one of the dark episodes of Westerns. Definitely. Uh, Well, yeah, the terms kind of bloodthirsty
0: and you know ruthless. uh, They often come up when talking about them,
2: don't they? Yeah. So when, when you actually read the sources and read the letters, and the, you know, of course, I'm not doing a whitewash would be completely pointless because yes. uh, we, we know that atrocities accompanied them wherever they went. Uh, yeah. But they were, what I was trying to show is that you know, they're normal human beings um, that um, very often you know, historians are very quick to, to pass judgment when, in fact, they should be trying to get inside the mentality and trying to understand why these things happen. Um, once you do that, then you can begin to give them, uh, an, as I think we should do to every historical character, to give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, how, how, how did they get there? Why was it that, that they were pushed to that extreme? Uh, but mm-hmm. in the case of the conquistadors, I think a lot of the legends um, emerged much later. Mm-hmm. And uh, the sources, are very peculiar because um, you know uh, the, the the dark history of of um, uh, Spain in the early modern period uh, was painted by uh, Spain's uh, enemies and detractors uh, in the late 16th, early 17th centuries. You know, especially uh, Dutch and English propaganda. You know, the Dutch after the Dutch Revolt, and the English after the collapse after the failure of the Spanish Armada, and the build up to uh, this projection of the English nation as as, uh, deeply uh, Protestant and therefore anti-Spanish because Spain represented the Catholic side. So that's what became known as the the black legend um, became incredibly persuasive. And one of the reasons for that is that the Spaniards themselves, themselves began to believe it because by the time the propaganda began to sink in, uh, Spain was already obsessed with the question of decline, you know, that the empire had had, had really created problems inside Spain. So mm. the internal criticisms never actually challenged what the detractors were saying. Now, the other really interesting thing is that all these detractors were using Spanish sources.
0: Right.
2: Yeah. Is that
1: because they shared a language, obviously? So that would the Then is that, or oh, I don't know.
2: Well, the the what, what I'm talking I'm talking about the, the 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 Dutch and the English.
1: Oh, the du- right? Oh, uh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, they,
2: they they were using Spanish sources. Yeah, that, that mm-hmm. had been translated. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, into Dutch and English, uh, and Latin and all sorts of. So they, you know they were circulating in the late eighteenth sixteenth uh, century, mm-hmm. um, and you know, the most famous of them was the the uh, a Dominican friar called Las Casas, Bartolomé de las Casas, who was. Um, the most um, outspoken defender of the rights of indigenous peoples. And uh, he wrote very learned academic works uh, which are incredibly interesting and complex. Uh, But he also wrote quite a few diatribes uh, which had the the specific aim of shocking uh, the Council of the Indies and the, the, uh, the the, the governors in Spain in order to implement reform, um, you know, to abolish things like the, the encomienda, which was the, these grants grants of land to uh, particular conquistadors with Indians uh, that they could exploit, even though in theory they needed to protect them and convert them to the Christian faith and treat them fairly and all that sort of thing. In practice, what Las Casas saw was that they they were not uh, paying much attention to to the legislation, so they in, uh, reform needed to be implemented. Now, in order to do that, Las Casas did what most people did at the time. He wrote a diatribe in order to shock. Mm. So he exaggerated things in a way that is blatantly obvious. Because if you read the the most famous of these diatribes, the the most brief account of the destruction of the Indies, when he says, literally, he says, there were 15 million indigenous peoples living in the Caribbean when I got there. And there are barely 5,000 left. Okay, fifteen million to five thousand sounds. It is pretty dramatic. It's
1: number, <laughs> yeah, <Population>. yeah, definitely.
2: <laughs> okay, uh, if you read uh, demographic uh, studies, uh, they they the, the most um, careful demographic demographic studies that have been done about the number of people that the Caribbean would have been able to to have at that time, uh, knowing the geography and knowing the kind of Uh, products that they that they ate, uh, there there can't have been more than 300,000 in -hmm. the Caribbean. So let's talk about 15 million, uh, instead of 300,000, it's, it's a very well known thing that people did in the Middle Ages. I mean, throughout the Middle Ages, that was what people did if you wanted to shock you just exaggerated figures and Mm. and everybody knew that you were doing it. And nobody cared. At about, when when Las Casas was writing, there were about 100,000 Indians left. So the depopulation had been from 300,000 to to 100,000. Let's exaggerate it a bit and say that it's half a million to 50,000. It's big, it's it's horrendous, but it's certainly not uh, what Las Casas was writing. Uh, It certainly didn't happen at the hands of the Spaniards because imagine, you know, a few hundred Spaniards, killing 15 million indians <laughs> i mean they would have been they would have had to be at it yeah. non-stop all day for, every day over, so two, centuries, over yeah, two centuries. it, it would
1: have make <laughs> se- you could, it's impossible
2: it doesn't it make sense <laughs> so why is it that um, these things were taken as historical fact yeah and 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 that the the, the, the legend spread it's it's mm. it's very it's that's quite an interesting phenomenon in in, in itself isn't it mm. but it's it's not what happened Certainly not what Las Casas had in mind. And if he had known that that was going to happen, that that, uh, his writings were going to be used in order to attack the Spanish monarchy, he would have been horrified because what he was trying to do with those writings was precisely to defend the rights of the monarchs against the abuses of these adventurers. You know, he was using, you know it's it's the the only reason why they're there is because they're representing the monarchs who are representing God. So that was the, that that was the mentality. So the interesting thing is that um, these detractors use these writings uh, in in order to attack Spain. Mm. Uh, it, it's a very ironic thing. It's a very ironic development. Yes. But it sunk in, and it's uh, it's still it's still part of the historiography. People will wow. will cite um, Las Casas' writings and and other uh, defenders of the Indians. As historical proof that the that the Spaniards were absolute barbarians and that they went and depop, they were responsible for the complete depopulation of the Caribbean and later on of Mexico and Peru, um, which would be in human terms, I mean if they actually did do that. Then it means that they were supernatural beings, you know. <laughs> yeah.
1: We need to rewrite history if that was the case. Yeah. Like. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what, that's what another point for you. I'm, yeah. I was just um, wondering the portrayals of the conquistadors compared to the British or the Dutch uh, New World explorers, whatever you want to use their quotes there, however you want to describe them. What's the main differences in how they're all described? Is there anything that's unique about how the about the reputation that the conquistadors got? And is that just purely based on the enemy writing or was there anything that that was quite similar with the way that the Dutch and the British were in the New World as well?
2: Yeah, well, well, things are changing now, of course, um, because the Dutch and the British are very, uh, very ashamed of of um, what the Empire, what happened during the Empire. And, you know, obviously, there were atrocities there as well. Uh, But the what we've received from that, from those uh, historical writings is not the same. Um, as you know the, the, the Dutch and the English and the French were never painted with the same dark brush you know the, oh. the their character was not as vilified as the Spanish character because the Spanish mm. character was painted as um, intrinsically cruel mm-hmm. uh, backward because because it was obscurantist because it was Catholic because they didn't they didn't believe in science and progress and all this kind I of stuff. I was going to
0: say, was that for mainly political, social, religious reasons? Like what was the main motivation behind making yeah, this? No, it, I,
2: I, I think it was mostly it was uh, propaganda against Spain, uh, first by Holland and then by by, by England because they mm. wanted to paint a very dark picture of Spain. Yeah. Uh, Holland, you can understand uh, why, because, you know, Spain was uh, uh, the ruler of of the Netherlands. Uh, up until the 1560s, and there was a first revolt of the Netherlands. Eventually, Spain only managed to keep the Southern part, which is now Belgium, uh, right. mostly Catholic. Uh, but the the, the Northern uh, Netherlands rebelled and uh, seceded from, from the Union. And it was particularly William of Orange, William the Silent, as he, as he used yeah. to be. You know, he, he wrote his um, apology in 1850, uh, 1581. Uh, and not only did he use the writings of Las Casas, but he also used a lot of um, uh, people who from from the Spanish court who had been antagonized by Philip II, and therefore oh. they went and painted a terrible picture of Philip II, which carried on well into the into the nineteenth, early twentieth centuries. And if you have a look at um, the American historian of the ne- Netherlands, uh, the famous um, Motley, J. L. Motley. Uh, who wrote that big uh, history of the Netherlands. Uh, there's a quote there about Philip II, which is, which is very illustrative because he says, uh, i memorize memorized this quote because I've, I've, told, I've told, it, told it to my students several times. It says, um, if Philip possessed a single virtue, it has eluded the meticulous research of the writer of these pages. If there were vices of which he was exempt, that is because it is not permitted to human nature to achieve perfection even in evil.
0: Oh wow. Well, okay. I that's yeah, that's brilliant. brilliant. That is I can that see is why you've memorized that.
1: That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> One to bring out at the dinner party. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and that's Philip II, you know, the, the most yeah. uh, successful of the Spanish monarchs. Uh, he was he was there. Uh, right in the middle of what's known as the Golden Age of Spain, mm. where you have yeah. all these incredible writers and artists producing magnificent works, uh, the, you know, architecture everywhere he he um, uh, united uh, the whole of the Iberian Peninsula, including Portugal, uh, he ruled an empire on which the sun never set, uh, he was actually quite popular um, at the time with the Spanish uh, people. And most modern biographies, I mean, the, 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 the most recent, the one written by Jeffrey Parker, uh, paints a completely different, it's not a whitewash. I mean, he's just yeah. got into the archives and brought out a completely different image of this, of, of this much maligned monarch, you know? And so mm. things are really changing um, on that front in a very, in a very exciting way. Mm.
0: Sounds like a research process. Sounds like it was yeah. fantastic. Properly delve really into done.
1: it. Yeah, thank you. So, to get into about you, you're clearly kind of passionate, and you know you've covered quite a lot of history and everything. What what got you into history? You know, what's led you to being into this moment now?
2: Yeah, it's a quite 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 a tricky question actually, and I, I'm not <laughs> sure I'd be able to point to to um point to a particular moment when I decided that I was going to be a historian. But um, I do remember at school uh, being very interested in in history. But in my early years at school in Mexico, I, I hated history. I, I really wow. hated it because it was um, it was all taught in a very nationalist way. So, you know, we were taught that Mexico emerged from 300 years of oppression and obscurantism with the wars of independence. And then there were the whole of the 19th century, all these wars of conservatives and liberals and whatever, and dates and battles and whatever. I, I, and I didn't really have the memory for that kind of thing. So I, I didn't enjoy... History at all. When I came to England, and especially getting into the Middle Ages, um, it was like getting into a. It was like reading the Arabian Nights. You know, finding a completely different world and yeah. and to get inside that world. So I I became very um, interested in in reading history, but I didn't really want to um, study history or become a historian myself because um, uh, you know I suppose because. My, all, all my contemporaries uh, thought that uh, if you want to make a living, uh, history was not probably a very good thing to do. <laughs> you, know, you had to do some <laughs> more useful things, like you know, become an architect or a, or a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. I was <laughs> quite good at maths at school, and they said you know if you do maths, you can then go and do engineering or so. So that that was thinking along those lines and um, uh, thinking of doing maths at university. But then one day, I think, I remember I, I was um, about to do my English O level, um, right. and I was reading the introduction uh, to one of Shakespeare's plays, Coriolanus, I think. And um, it had references to Aristotle and to Montaigne and, you know, what he was reading at the time and Roman historians and um, Polybius and Livy. And, and, and I just thought this is, this is just so much more interesting than, than, than maths. <laughs> uh, uh, because it's it's so inexact you never know what's going to happen but it's so enjoyable so mm. it was a way in you know quite a literary way into history you know because mm, um, what attracted me was the, the the intellectual um context in which these works emerged but in order to understand that you have to un- understand what was going on around so i got much more interested in cultural and cultural intellectual religious history much more than the political um, aspects which always i just don't have the memory for political history you know, I, I, I forget names.
0: a lot those yes.
2: <laughs> so but cultural you know cultural currents and trends and that that, that excited me a lot and oh. uh that's that's what got me into it and uh
1: mm-hmm.
2: and i i i haven't looked back occasionally i think gosh i wonder if you know i i, I probably would be a lot better off if i'd done something else but
0: no, but, no, no. No, uh, can't say that. I think you've possibly- done very well. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's funny you say about that in school. I think that it's a tragedy how poorly done history is. I think it's on the up mm. now. I worked in a school last year. It is on the up. They do they have widened out the curriculum a lot more. But like you said about um in Mexico, they kind of start it bang, they pick a point, they say this is history, they compact it in, they make it very nationalistic. And Liv's nodding, I can see she had the same kind of experience in school. They do the same in Britain, they start band 1066, that's it. And they do a little bit and they skip over the bad bits and then you just kind of go with it. But I'm the same as you, I always, I I loved the English and the history and I think that you can kind of divide people into two. I mean, in my head anyway, you can divide people into two sides. You've got the black and white people who can do the maths and the science and who can get the right answer and there's wrong or there's right. And I don't like being wrong. <laughs> so I like history and, and English because then you can just waffle and you can argue. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: and, and things start to make sense. And it is fascinating how we pull out these, these like you say, these cultural trends, these social trends. I do think that is the most fascinating bit of history. So it's good to see that you agree with that as well. Mm. So what has been a, a career highlight for you since you started all those years ago? Has there been anything that stood out? I don't know if you've done kind of documentary or TV stuff or just books or
2: um, what's been? I was thinking, I mean, there, there have been a couple of a couple of um, years that um, in 96, 97, I, I was elected to to a fellowship at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, uh, oh, nice. which was um, well, just a fan- fantastic place because um, uh, you didn't have to promise anything or do anything. And they, they did everything for you. You know, you, you arrived and they gave you an office yeah. and um, a house for your family and everything else. And it was in, in a big... Um, the 800 acres of, of woodland and the lake yeah. and everything else and you could just get on just get on with with your work in the company of other people who were doing all sorts of very different subjects so you had constant uh, exchanges with, with with people who were doing proper work without any pressure and, hmm. and that that was wonderful uh, although it was a little bit intense because there was you know a lot of competition, and you know once you, once you get something like that you really at the end you need to prove that you 've advanced and uh, i got I, I I did so many different things that i didn 't actually uh, come up with anything at the in the end so um, <laughs> You're having I, too much fun but it, but it was a, a totally enjoyable year um, yeah. and then i get but I think even better than that was um, just being elected to a fellowship in a place called um the um the Liguria Study Center for the Arts and the Humanities which is in Boliasco in the north of Italy
0: oh wow
2: just just west of Genoa and it mm. was just a, a month uh, uh, as a residential fellow there and it was exactly the same as, as the institute but, but a little bit more luxurious because, wow uh, this was a you know a fine mansion next to the sea and and they did uh, they fed you very very well
0: the Italians uh, do know how to be luxury.
2: Yeah. And it was only about 10 of us, but they were all, you know, I, I was the only historian there was a literary critic, there was a, an artist, a composer, uh, uh, some, a theater expert, a playwright. Wow. Uh, all, all, so the, the dinners were, were, were fascinating. In never uh,
0: mind, I was gonna say, I'd love to go to one of your dinner parties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I
2: hundred think, percent. I think if I was gonna choose, I would go for that month in, wow. in Liguria because uh, yeah. the food was was extraordinary and oh, yeah. you know if you got bored you could just catch the train you were in Genoa in about 20 minutes and uh, oh. Genoa is a very very interesting city you know it's not mm. it's not one of the most famous cities in Italy but mm. once you're you walk in the center there are so many interesting gems around oh. uh, but uh, Italy. Yeah, that, that was the probably the high point of my career
1: I can oh. imagine oh. completely and that's a lovely point to uh, Keep us positive and move on into yeah. our fun round tonight. <laughs> I know we set these questions beforehand, but I think they still catch people out, but we love yeah. them. So Never we're going to ask you a set of four questions and we we'll simply just give your first and immediate answer to, there's no right, no wrong at all. And that's the joy of this. There's no wrong <laughs> answer. So yeah. who is your favourite figure in all of history?
2: <laughs> you know, I, I like spent a car. lot, a long time trying to think People I, do, and, and I didn't come up with anything.
1: But mean, What's the first, that, without thinking, if you're uh, going to say uh, a person I think it, right it, now, it's,
2: it's got to be Jesus Christ. Oh,
1: <laughs> not, he's not featured yet. Hmm? Oh, I like that. Okay, good. So yeah. then, who's your least favorite figure in all of history? Well,
2: if, if if it's because because my favorite is Jesus Christ, my least favorite would be Herod.
1: Oh, Herod. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Perfect. That sounds
1: good. <laughs> okay, I like that. Okay, yeah. so a bit more fun and upbeat as well. Then, if you were going to go on a road trip, you could have three people from history to be in your car. So it could be any time period. Doesn't matter who. Yeah. Who would you have?
2: I um, I'm going to cho- choose three near contemporaries. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. One is uh, Michel de Montaigne, mm-hmm. French writer, essayist. Uh, mm-hmm. The second one is my namesake, uh, Miguel de Cervantes the author all of right. the and the mm-hmm. third one is uh, one of your compatriots uh, william shakespeare who i think oh, you might wow. have heard of yeah oh, I,
1: I, think um, I definitely <laughs> heard of him at one point.
2: Yeah. <laughs> i think to to get those three together uh, uh, that 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 would be an amazing experience because they were all doing very different things but uh, mm. they had very very similar ideas and they were approaching um you know the crisis of the of the 16th century you know how wow. Uh, How, you know, with the discovery of the New World, the Reformation, the beginnings of the scientific revolution, all the questions that were being asked, and Mm -hmm. how, you know, the the ways in which they all approached the topic of things like illusion and reality, or how do I know um, what I know, and, uh, you know, and and how that links to how you behave as well, you know, the the link between knowledge and ethics. Um, And they were, they were all three enormous fun. You know, oh, I like
1: they, that. They, and that's they, what you
2: uh, want. They, 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 I think so you would have a very entertaining uh, uh, trip full of laughter. They they all love their drink and their good food. <laughs> and else. So That I seems to be, be
0: a common theme with this question. Everyone always puts at least one person in their car and they think, who's going to provide the booze and the fun? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or the snacks. Yeah. Who's going to do the entertainment, <laughs> the music? All right, then.
1: So our final question. If you could go back in time, one day where
2: and when would you go to? I think I mean uh, again there's so many places but because of what I told you at the beginning about uh, you know the excitement of discovering this uh, medieval woman that I that I found yeah. so influential, yeah, I think I would love to spend a day in um, Siena uh, in the in the 1370s or thereabouts wow. okay. uh, just to eavesdrop you know, to see how how this woman, Catherine, was uh, was relating to her contemporaries, because, um, uh, you know, what we read about her and what people wrote about her later on, a lot of it sounds very weird to us. Uh, Hmm. But when when you read her letters and when you read the way in which people responded to her, uh, she must have been a most attractive uh, personality. (laughs) Yeah. A a, a kind of a magnetic personality. And and Created such a wake um, of of enthusiasm behind her that I think I think I would have loved to to, to have seen yeah, her at work for a, her, a day. Yeah. And also, you know, being in Siena in the 14th century with all that all that art and architecture. And uh, oh, yeah. God, incredible.
1: although, of course,
2: uh, you you would need to put up with a lot of mud and and uh, quite a bit <laughs> of pest as well. You know,
1: <laughs> you'd be allowed your trainers, so that would be. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you'd be allowed your trainers to get through enough. it. <laughs> Oh, that's a lovely,
0: uh, lovely yeah, note, what a note to, to finish, finish on. on. To thank, you thank you so you. much for talking to us. This has been so okay. much fun. Really interesting. Not a topic we've covered before on here, so I'm sure our listeners will appreciate a bit of Spanish history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's what
2: I'm. I'm told that because uh, I, I, I thought it was quite a well-known topic, but uh, apparently people don't really know it very well.
0: No,
1: and that's why we want to make sure yeah. that we can offer our platform to change that yeah and it's very important for people to check out your work or even come to university yeah. go to university if you're a
0: student <laughs> go take up a lecture
2: <laughs> okay well now now the, the book is available in paperback so um oh
0: fantastic And we'll post all the links to it on our social media so people can grab a copy as well if they want
2: Okay, brilliant. brilliant.
0: brilliant. Thank you. Right. Well, we shall leave you till your evening then. And that was the brilliant Fernando Cervantes talking to us about his book, Conquistadors. We'll post all the links on our social media. It's just been released in paperback as well. So if you want to grab a coffee, you will know where to find it. We'll be back with another episode next week. But until then, this has been Phoebe Style
1: and Olivia Smith. And this is Khaki Malarkey signing off. <laughs>